Well, I think we'll get started, if you don't mind. Uh, everyone uh, online, uh, I've asked Glenn to put a couple of PowerPoint slides up. Here in the class, I've distributed a copy of this, which we're going to look at in just a minute. Um, the synthetic chart, which is in your notes, it's the first page of the James plus Fred just distributed one as well. You, what I would encourage you to do is look at the chart. This is a synthetic chart. This is Chuck Swindoll's chart. They're in the public domain, so that's why I use it. But you will see, and you can see it on the slide here that you guys are looking at online as well as here. On the very left-hand side up in the corner, you see face, and then you see deeds. And then uh, near the bottom, you'll see the statement under theme, real faith produces authentic deeds. In a very real sense, that's the thesis of the book of James. What James is interested in exploring is, unlike the Apostle Paul, James is exploring what does the justified life look like. James does not explain how you're justified. Paul does that. Yeah. We studied that in Galatians chapter 3 and 4. James assumes that. James does not detail, James does not even detail the content of the gospel. He assumes you knew this, know this. The other thing about the book of James is you'll see, and again, I just follow across Swindoll, you have four different categories. There's no real magic to this, but Swindoll divides it this way. Authentic stability, authentic love, authentic control and humility, and then finally authentic peace. Again, they're his categories. I, I have a little bit of a different approach to it, which you'll see as we get into it. The other thing I'd like you to do is look at, if Glenn, you'll throw up that second slide. This slide or this sheet that I just gave to the guys here in the class, it's like a pinwheel. And you'll see in the middle is that little ellipse-like uh, shape, uh, which is the core, James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. We did a very detailed exposition of that a number of weeks ago when we compared Galatians 3 and 4 with James 2. Faith dash work. James is exploring the relationship between our faith, justifying faith, and our works. And so what I did is I, and you, you really start with, in terms of the book, you start with testings and temptations, which we're going to get into in just a minute, and just go around the pinwheel where you end up to a rejection of worldliness. These are the things, these are the themes that James developed. Again, he does not tell us how you're justified. He does not give a theological exposition of justification. That's Paul in Galatians 3 and 4. He is explaining what does the justified life look like. And so, you know, at the bottom, I have the, the two James. Remember, we, we'll talk about this in just a minute. James is, without question, arguably the earliest book of the New Testament, probably written about AD 45 or AD 46. I'll talk about that in just a minute. And if, you, if, if that's accurate, I think it's very defensible. That means James, who's the brother of Jesus, is writing his book about 13 years after Jesus went back to the Father, which is astonishing. That's how close it is to the events that, of course, comprise the gospel. And so James is writing, as you'll see it right away in verse 2, James is writing to the Jews. He'll speak of them, the Jews of the diaspora, the Jews who have been dispersed. 
because of persecution. Again, I'll talk about that in just a minute. And these people are under um, under intense persecution, under in, intense, they're being ostracized by everybody, actually. And so he's going to be talking about the things that are really important to them. And so it's a marvelous exposition. That's why it's such a unique book. It's a marvelous exposition very early in the history of the church. It's very early, only 13 years after Jesus goes back to the Father. And he said the issues that the people, and you read this, you think, oh, my goodness, it's the same things I'm facing. I'm facing exactly the same things. And so it's, it's, it's why, uh, in terms of application, it's one of the most applicationally centered books in the Bible. I mean, every single verse, you're just, oh, my, that's exactly what I'm facing. And so as we get into this, I'm, I'm hoping you keep in mind what I've said now several times. James is not explaining the doctrine of justification. Paul does that. He is explaining what the justified life looks like, assuming justified, assuming justification, assuming you come to faith in Christ. Here is what your life is going to look So it dovetails absolutely perfectly with Paul. It, it's not opposed to Paul. It's not contradicting Paul. It complements Paul. You, you know what I mean by that? Complements complements Paul. And so you're, you're going to, as I develop this and we talk about it and so on, I think you'll, you'll see and appreciate it. It really is, um, it's one of the most important, applicationally, I should say, it's one of the most important books of the Bible. Could this be like Galatians 5, where Galatians 5 is the fruit of the Spirit, and this is the fruit of justification? Yes. Yes. That's that's a comparable analogy. It really is, yes. Okay, thanks. All right, let's do a couple of introductory things, and if you follow in, in your, your notes or whatever, I'll just have a couple of things about author, date, etc. Let me just make a couple of comments. I, I think it's important to do that. When you read... Um, the name James, the Greek is actually Yahoo, Jacob. However, no Jew was particularly happy about naming their firstborn child Jacob, Yahoo. Because as you go back to the, the, the chapters in Genesis, Japheth was a conniver, a deceiver, he was a manipulator. And so that was why that name was, was slowly, slowly will inch back into the Jewish uh, naming of their kids. But they kind of stayed away. So when they translated into English, they always translated James. And in the King James Bible, which was in 1613, the, 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 the writers, uh, the translators of the King, they said, there's no way we are bringing that into English as Jacob. So they brought it as James. <laughs> and every translation of six calls it James. But it is, the Greek is Yaakov, it's Jacob. So, I mean, that may or may not be important to you. It's kind of an interesting kind of aside. So the second thing is, which James is this? Is it James, the son of Zebedee, who's John's brother? You know, John's the writer of the gospel, the letters, it's all that stuff. Well, probably not, because James was martyred in A.D. 44. <coughs> He was killed by Herod Antipas. So it's, it's, it's not James, the brother of Zebedee. This is James, the brother of Jesus. And what we know about James, um, and again, I'm, I'm thinking you know this, but what we know about James is that James, in, in, his, in the years that Jesus was growing up and in the early years of Jesus, Paul, this is thought his brother Jesus was nuts. Along with Jude and the other brothers and sisters of Jesus, they said he's insane. 
They didn't want anything to do with it. And you read that in, in both Luke and Matthew. They both those passages cover the brothers and sisters of James of Jesus thought he was out of his mind. They didn't want anything to do with it. But in First Corinthians chapter fifteen, it tells us Paul tells us that Jesus met James. First Corinthians fifteen chapter uh, chapter fifteen verse seven, and it was the resurrection of Jesus, his brother, that brought James to faith. And then he, James, becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church. And you read about that in Acts 12, and you read about that in Acts 15. In the great Jerusalem council, James is the one who wrote the letter that circulated to all the churches. So James is a remarkable person in the New Testament because, number one, he's the brother of Jesus. Number two, he rejected Jesus until after the resurrection. And number three, becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church, the most important leader. He was martyred in A.D. 62. He, too, would be martyred. He was killed. Um, and so his, his role, as you can, if you're following all that I've been saying, his role wasn't a very, very long role, only about 20 years. But those 20 years, uh, stretch it out, 20, maybe 25, were extremely important years in the early church. And so Peter relies on him. Peter tells us. Paul relies on him. Peter tells us. Paul tells us. He says, I went down. He tells us this in Galatians 1. I went down to Jerusalem to meet with James. And so James becomes a crucial leader in the very early church. And this is why he, he writes this letter. And because he's a leader of Jerusalem church, because of the persecutions, because of the previous Babylonian captivity in 586 B.C., the Jews are spread. They're spread throughout the world. And because they are dispersed and because of the missionary journeys of Paul and others that the Bible doesn't necessarily talk about, a lot of these Jews are coming to faith in Christ. So James writes this letter to them. This is a letter written to Jews who have come to faith in Christ. And it's written to Jews who have come to faith in Christ outside of Jerusalem. And that's why you read in verse 1, James, servant of God, of Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. The Greek word for dispersion is diaspora. And so he's writing to Jews who are dispersed. And so it becomes, that's why the book of James has this, he uses this Hebrew, he uses the Hebrew language. I, I don't mean it's in Hebrew, it's in Greek. But he uses Hebrew euphemisms, Hebrew language, language from the Old Testament, how he speaks of God, his Old Testament language. And that's because he's writing to Jews. But he's writing to Jews who have come to faith in Jesus as their Messiah. And what they are facing are the things that he brings up in the book. And so as you keep this little pinwheel thing that I put together of the themes. He, again, I always say this about the sixth time today. James does not explain how you're saved. James does not give us the gospel. James does not give a definition of justification. What James does do is he says, assuming you're justified, here's what your life looks like. Right, maybe you should put it this way. Here's what your life should look like. And so with these, these kind of introductory items, it's written, as I said, there, honestly, there's very little, even among liberal scholars, there's not a lot of disputing of this. James is the first book of the New Testament in terms of time. It was written about A.D. 45 or A.D. 46. It would be written from Jerusalem, 
of course, where he lived. And so that's one of the reasons why it, it, it just has this Old Testament flavor to it. The language is the language of the Old Testament, albeit it's written in the Greek. It has the language because he's writing to Jews, and that would, that would make sense. Okay? The purpose of the book, and I've already said this, but the, the purpose of the book is to challenge these Jews to, uh, to a life of holiness, but he's also encouraging them. He writes the book to try to help them, help them to understand the, the, the challenge of holiness that the Lord Jesus wants for them. Again, the language I used, what the justified looks like, but also to encourage them. Because you, you, I'm, I know you know this, and we've talked about this to one degree or another. For you to come to Christ in the first century, you're turning your back on 1,500 years of your tradition. What your mom and dad and your grandparents had taught you and so on. You're, you're turning your back on that. And so as you embrace that, that key teaching that Jesus is my, my Messiah and so on, that doesn't mean that you're not going to be escaping all of the difficulties and ostracism going by that. You've been pretty much thrown out of your families. You, you, you may lose your job and all of that. They, they face all this. It's a little bit like the book of Hebrews, which also encourages Hebrew believers to endure and, be, and persevere. James does the same thing, but James does it in such a way that he's challenging them to obedience. James will do a lot of in-your-face talking. He's in your face. He doesn't hold back. He doesn't use figurative language. It's amazing. There are 108 verses in the book of James. 54 of those 108 have imperative verbs. You know what I mean by that? They're commands. So that means half of the book of James are commands. So it's a book challenging as well as encouraging. So it's a book of action. It's a book, as I've said now about a zillion times, he's explaining, you come to faith in Christ, here's what your life looks like. Now get on with it. And it's filled with imperatives. And I said 108 verses, 54. If my math is correct, half of the verses are filled with verbs that are imperative mood or command. So it's a book of action. It's a book not of complacency and apathy. It's not a book of deep theology. It's a book of action because it's explaining what this new life should look like, what your expectations are, what, you, what your response should be, and the commands to be different. James will twice talk about what we say, our speech. He'll use the metaphor of the tongue. He's interested in that um, Changed life, that transformed life. In the church in uh, Jerusalem, how did he get this message out to the, the Jewish people who were, I guess, coming to a knowledge of Jesus Christ and accepting who he really was? I mean, they, he's, he's talking to an audience that has an open mind, unlike Pharisees and Sadducees that didn't have such an open mind, right? So what, what, what would this audience look like geographically, like Omaha? And well, it, it, he says in verse 1, to, to the 12 tribes and the dispersion, they're everywhere. So, I mean, I, I can't confine it to one geographical, they're everywhere. 
Those are Roman roads for the interstate. Yeah, I mean, it, and, and the ability, the, the New Testament focuses on two key people, Peter and Paul. They don't tell us about the other disciples, but we know from church history and a lot of extra biblical material that the other disciples are traveling all over the place. I mean, tradition has it that Andrew and, and, and his, his colleagues take the gospel to India. So, I mean, they're just all over the place. And so as they're spreading all over the place, they're taking these letters. Of course, a little bit later, the letters of Paul, because they keep copying them and copying them. Paul will say in the book of Ephesians, as he read this letter to all the churches in the valley, the valley that goes from kind of east to west, or excuse me, from west to east. And so, I mean, it's just everything's on the move. Because that's what Jesus says in Acts 1.8. Start in Jerusalem and go to Judea, go to Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. That's exactly what they do. That's Christ's strategic plan. And that's exactly what the church does. And so James is writing, and he has, because he is Jewish and he is leader of the Jerusalem church, the mother church. He is interested in the Jews who are dispersed, to who are coming to faith in Christ, to know what this means for them. The book of Hebrews, which is written a little bit later, the book of Hebrews does exactly the same thing. However, the book of Hebrews, like James, is a heavily theological book. Does that answer your question? So I've tried to set up now, I've got some of the introductory stuff done. I tried to set up for you, one, who James is, two, the uniqueness of the book of James, explaining to us its relationship to Paul. It doesn't explain the gospel. It doesn't explain justification. assumes that's already occurred. Now, what's the life look like? And then a little bit about the the style of Greek. And by the way, this has always baffles the critical scholar. The book of James, in terms of the Greek language, is a masterpiece. Its style is almost perfect. James, I mean, that that reflects what happens to so many of these Jewish leaders, but it reflects a style that, that a little bit like first and second Peter, that is a mastery of the Greek language. And so it's stylistically a masterpiece. It's a beautiful piece of literature as well as one of the letters of the new Testament. Well, let's dig in. Um, let's dig into the, the book then. All right. Is there any, any online questions or anybody here in the room? You all with me? Now, next week, what I will do is give you a blank one of these and ask you to fill it in. <laughs> so don't throw this away. If you lose it, you owe my church $1,000 for our capital campaign. <laughs> that usually gets a smile. It must mean you're all willing to do that. So lose. All of you lose it, Mark. Church will get its endowments set. Just kidding. But uh, try to keep it. Uh, I will refer to it a lot in the coming weeks as we get into the epistle. Okay, let's read one more time verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, this is, a, this is a, a grammar thing, but no, servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ are connected. <laughs> And that it's that that coordinating conjunction and that is understood to be equals. James represents two, God and Lord Jesus Christ. So it's just that that important theological um, in, in terms of grammar, that theological equal between Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ is God, God and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And that word servant uh, is sometimes translated slave. It's more like a bond servant. That's a very familiar way for the apostles to refer to themselves. Paul does that all the time, as you know from his writings. I already commented he's writing the letter to the 12 tribes, which means Jews, in the dispersion. And that is the Jews that have been dispersed. Not the Jews of Jerusalem or the Jews of Judea. These are the Jews spread throughout the world. And, I mean, really, it, it is everywhere. But larger concentrations of Jews would be to the north and to the east. But it's not confined to that. I mean, the east is where, you know, they, they went east into Babylonian captivity and all that. But that's not the only place where they're dispersed. They're all over the place. They're in Rome. They're in Corinth. But anyway, so he's writing to them. And that's it. He immediately gets into his point. And so the first point he makes, which it goes through verse 12, is the purpose of testings. That's how I outlined it in, in, your, in the outline I've given you. But sometimes that, and by the way, I want to make this point. The word that's translated trials, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials. That word trial is periosmos. It's exactly the same word that's translated temptation. So in the New Testament, trial and temptation are translating the same word. The context helps us to understand which one he's referring to. And we're going to see in verse 13, he's going to use that same word. We're going to talk about temptations. There is a difference between a trial and a temptation. Or a, te- a trial, and that's how James is going to define it. A trial is a testing of your faith. A trial, which is the testing of your faith, is sourced in God. A temptation, which is an enticement to evil, is sourced in you, the world, or Satan, not God. But let's look at his first. This is the first 12 verses. I doubt we're going to get done with this. But I want you to notice, again, what I told you, 45 of the 108 verses have commands in them. And here you see one of them. Count it all joy. That's command. My brothers and sisters, when you meet trials, periosmos, when you meet trials of various kinds. So James doesn't say, if you meet them, just by happenstance, if they come along. What does he say? When they happen. So it's the expectation is, and that's certainly not new news to you, but the expectation is expect testings and trials in your life. And your response is joy. I, I didn't hear anyone say amen to that. I, I didn't hear anyone affirm that. Pure joy. But I heard everybody say, well, I don't want to respond in joy. I want to hold a pity party and invite everybody to my pity party. I don't want to have joy. Now, let's let's make sure. We've done this before. We did this when we were going through the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. I define joy as an attitude of gratitude. Joy is not a synonym for happiness. It's not that the Lord doesn't want us to be happy. But, and I'll see if I can remember how to say this. Happiness depends on your happenings. And if your happenings don't happen to happen the way you want your happenings to happen, you are unhappy. Did you get that? Write it all down. Repeat it next week. But happiness is a response to our circumstances. 
Joy is our response to the Lord. It's a supernatural quality or character trait of the believer. And Nehemiah talks of the joy of the Lord is our strength. Joy is a supernatural quality produced by the Holy Spirit. We learned that in chapter 5 of Galatians. So when James is saying this as a command, count it all joy when you encounter the periosmos of life, the trials and, and, and testings of, of life, you should respond in joy. That's how the Lord wants you. And that's consistent with what Paul writes in Galatians, as you know. Why? Why would we respond that way? The answer to that is verse 3. Four, you could translate that because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So we're learning something here. This is not inconsistent with what Paul argues. Paul argues the same thing as in Romans chapter 5. But trials are how God grows your faith. And the word there, trying to think if I'm going to do this. Um, I think I will. When Paul writes there, excuse me, when James writes there in verse 3, the testing of your faith, the Greek word is dokumon, from, from the word dokumonzo, but it's dokumon, that's a, that's a really, really important word. Because the word dokumon comes from the metallurgical industry of the first century of the ancient world. The metallurgical, you know, metal. And so you, you, you all know this. If you find gold, you find silver or iron or whatever iron ore, you don't have that pure in nature. You have to take that rock or block of rock, put it in something really hot, get it heated up so all the junk, in most cases, the junk comes to the top. What you have left is that pure gold, that pure silver or iron or whatever it is. That's dakimazo. You dakimazo a piece of ore to get the purity. So James uses that word, dakimadzo, dakimad, the testing. That's God getting rid of the junk in your life. It's the testing of your faith. In other words, God permits, maybe that's the best way to say it, God permits things that come into our lives to test our faith. In one of my other classes, we're, we're going through 1 Samuel. And if you read from chapter 13 through the end of 1 Samuel, when Saul and, and, and Jonathan, and his son, are killed on Mount Gilboa, what's, what's, what's Saul doing to David? He's trying to kill him. David kills Goliath at age 17 on, on, you know, in, in chapter 17 uh, of, of 1 Samuel. And he is 17 years old, actually, when he kills him. And, and it's amazing because... He's this hero. He's he's championing. The people are singing. Saul kills his thousands, but David kills his ten thousands. What does Saul start to do? He starts to throw spears at him and start chasing him. And for almost 13 years, Saul is chasing David around the Judean wilderness. 
And he said, wait a minute. God rejected Saul's king. Samuel crowned David as king. And David's running around, running around the gym. What's going on? God is developing David's faith, <clears throat> maturing David's character, and developing his leadership skill to be the king. God takes his time developing his people. That's exactly what James is saying here. God is putting us through the dakimadzo, the dakamion of life. He is developing our character. He is growing our faith. He is maturing us to be the people he wants us to be. Another way to put it is trials constitute the curriculum God has for you and me. Many, many years ago, I said to the Lord, well, Lord, I'd like to drop this course and add another course in your curriculum. I don't like this course. And God sent the message back, Jim, there's no drop ad system in my curriculum. You signed up. I'm being a little facetious, but I think you get the point. This is extraordinary piece of information for us. And for the early Jewish people who convert to Christianity, believe in Jesus the Messiah, they really need to get their arms around us. Don't expect an easy life when you come to Jesus. This, this pernicious heresy, come to Jesus and you'll get lots of wealth. He's interested in being healthy and wealthy, the prosperity gospel. I'm going to be very blunt here. Is a despicable lie. And people who buy into it are deceived. And they find out rather quickly something's wrong here. And what the, the they come back, well, you just don't have enough faith. You just don't have enough. And by the way, send me a thousand dollars and we'll 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 grow this. Put the seed and we'll grow it. And it's it's pernicious. James is landing on the line. Okay, you'll be justified, you've come to faith in Christ. This is how God grows your faith through the trials of life. Now, these trials, don't you think, Jim, are um, custom designed for his purposes, for what he wants us to do ahead and in the future in our lives, for the purpose of bringing glory to him and spreading the gospel? Yeah, well, I mean, that's bring glory to him is always the ultimate purpose for everything, you know. You know. But it's it's for our good. My, my pastor always puts it this way. It's for our good and for his glory. Yeah. Everything that happens in our life is for our good and for his glory. Now, James, though, is interested in helping us to understand something. Notice, notice the end of verse 3. The dakimion of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, I read from the ESV translation. There are a number of ways it's translated in different translations. Some translations have developed perseverance. Steadfastness captures it a little bit more, only in the sense that it's focusing on the end. You're steadfast in your faith. Perseverance is kind of part of that process, but the end is steadfast. The, the Greek word is hupomene. And it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a terrific word in the, in the original language. That it, what the Lord is doing is he, through the trials that he sends, through those, those, those circumstantial issues that he sends into our life, he helps us 
to deepen our faith, our trust, and our confidence in him. So it would become like a Roman soldier digging our hobnail boats, boots into the dirt and we stand. We're not only persevering, we stand in our faith. So that's why I, I do like how the ESVs translated that steadfast. We become unshakable in terms of our faith and our trust in the Lord. We not only persevere, we're steadfast. And so you say, well, wow, that's good. It's exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, that God is developing in our lives those qualities that enable us to represent him in this world, this dark world. But to do that, we need perseverance. We need steadfastness. And he says, there's only one way God can develop us. As he constantly, continually, patiently, relentlessly grows our faith. That, when I study, it's the marvelous thing about studying David's life. Uh, that's what happens to David. He has really significant down points. And that, 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 those, those chapters don't hide any of it. But he also has moments of tremendous triumph. He's learning what it means to trust the Lord in the midst of And James is just saying that. And I think the typical Jew at this time would, would reflect on Torah, reflect on the law and the prophets, reflect on the histories. That's what the Old Testament teaches me. That's right. But he's not done. Verse 4. And let steadfastness, hupomene, let steadfastness have its full effect. That result clause, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, I want to, this is very, very difficult. I want, to, I want to emphasize that. The word <coughs> perfect is teleos. Now, I'm, I'm saying it because th this is really a struggle because we translate teleos into the English language perfect. And when you read the word perfect, what do you think? Sinless. That's not what it means. And so, as Jesus says in Matthew 7, 1, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. The same Greek word. You have to understand what that means. The Greeks always thought, what is, the, what is the intended result of this? The intended result of the trials which produce, Hubba steadfastness. This steadfastness that helps you to reach the goal. Teleos is the goal. What is the goal? I'm becoming like Jesus. I'm progressively becoming more and more like Jesus. That's the goal of sanctification. So James is saying exactly the same thing Paul says in Galatians 5 and 6. At the end goal, the teleos of our lives is to become like Jesus. So James is telling us why. The, 
The process of sanctification, I'm using Paul's language that he uses in Galatians and imposing it on James. The goal of sanctification is to become like Jesus. And how does the Father do that? By putting you through trials which test your faith, which then produce the steadfastness so that he can continue his work of transformation. And the word complete is Halokleparos, which means whole. It means there isn't anything lacking anymore. These two words, the English translation ESV is perfectly complete. The Greek is teleos and aloleros. Both of them are saying this is the goal. Here, here, here's the end goal for it. You're becoming more and more like Jesus. You're becoming, you're, you're reaching the goal. You're becoming complete. You're becoming whole. And when it's all done, when it's all finished, you're not going to like anything. I'll tell you, verse 2 through verse 4 are some of those powerful verses in the Bible. Because it helps you understand why God lets you go through so much junk in life. It's his curriculum to grow you. And as I've told him many times, I want to drop the course and add another one. He says, there's no drop out in my system. This is how I'm going to do it. And you have choice. And you only have two. Fight me or trust me. You don't have any other choices. If he's your Lord and Savior, you can either fight him or you can trust him. And that's what David went through in those chapters. He resisted. He cried out. Didn't understand. But he grew. He touched. He really pushed back. But he grew in his trust in the Lord as God was preparing him to be the king. You see this 70-year-old in the Valley of Elah championing the, the armies of the Lord of hosts as he speaks to Goliath, that uncircumcised Philistine. And he he's a slinger. He takes that sling and the, 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 the balls that were used about the size of a baseball, and he embedded it in his head, Goliath's head. He fell down. He went and cut off his head. Champion. And then you see him running. He, where does he go? He goes to the Philistines. He goes to Gath. The city from which this is unbelievable what happened to the great guy of faith. He's facing the circumstances. He's facing the trials. And he acts like an unbeliever for a while. God keeps doing it until he finally begins to learn what the Lord wants him to learn. So James, what James is saying, you go back and you read, you read the Old Testament figures, Moses, same thing. Takes 80 years for God to get Moses where he's ready to lead the children out of Israel out of Egypt. 80 years. And I mean, you can just go over on and on with all these Old Testament figures. What James is saying is consistent with how the Old Testament developed God, develops the characters of the Old Testament saints. All right. Uh, yes. I just keep on the Christian as a This particular verse is more explained to me by Michael Turks. Ah. Right on. This, this is my favorite verse. No kidding. 
That's great. Yeah. So Dr. Durst explained that to you. He did a good job. <laughs> That's great. I did not know that. So if you simplify it and distill it down into one phrase, from God's economy of things, trials produce growth. There's no other way to do it. And for you and me, you go back to the command. The command is count it all joy. Because you understand what God is doing. It doesn't mean, are they going to end with joy? Are there tears? Yeah. Is there some kinds of pain in your gut and your, yes. But instead of responding to the circumstances, you're responding to the Lord. The attitude of gratitude that my Lord knows what he's doing. I don't have a clue, but he knows what he's doing. And so you understand. And this, to me, I spent a lot of time, so almost 45 minutes on this. But when you really, really understand this, it gives you the perspective that enables you to be steadfast and to endure and to hang in there. It isn't going to last. I know what God's doing, and I trust him. All right. Now, it's, are you with me? Anybody online? Yeah, Everybody we're with here. Me? Yeah, we're here. All right. Very good. All good. I was... I was using that as a way to get a sip of coffee. So I have that sip. Now, do not, it, it looks like we should separate these two. Don't do this because verse 5 through verse 8 are inextricably linked to what he's just said. Because what he's really saying to us is we need wisdom. So he immediately says, if any of you lacks wisdom. Wisdom in what sense? Wisdom to see the good in what God is doing and to know how to deal with it. See, James is using, you know, the the Jewish people who would read this in A.D. 45, 46, 47, 48, these early readers, they would know exactly what he's talking about. Because their minds and their lives have been steeped in Ecclesiastes and the Proverbs and the Psalms. They would know the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. They know what he means by that. If you lack wisdom, what do you do? Wisdom to understand and see the good that God is going to bring out of this. And to understand how I respond to this. (laughs) Because sometimes it would be not incorrect. It would not be wrong. It would not be evil to say, Lord, I don't understand why you're allowing this to happen to me. But help me to understand it. You're asking for wisdom. Lord, help help me to know how I should respond to this. I don't want to disappoint you. I want to, I want to learn what you want me to learn through this. I want, to, I want to grow the way you want me to grow through this. You're asking God for wisdom. You're asking God for insight. I'm using words that are in the Old Testament um, wisdom literature. You're asking God for understanding. That's what he's saying. Don't be afraid to talk to God about this. If you lack wisdom, how to understand what God is, have insight into what God is really doing, insight into how to respond to this, ask God. Talk to God about it. Well, there's a novel idea. 
You're in a difficult time in life. You go to the Lord. Very first, the default response is immediately go to the Lord. You lack wisdom? Ask the Lord. Notice how he says this. He gives generously to all without a reproach, and it will be given to him. God's not a God who hides things. God isn't a God who's doing God wants us, one, to trust him. Number two, to go to him and seek the wisdom that only he can give us. <clears throat> so he's giving a very normal default response, but most people don't do that. Well, I, that, that's unfair. I shouldn't say it that way. Many people don't do it that way. They go to 754 other folks, and then finally they go to the Lord. Oh, by the way, Lord, I've talked to 754 people. What do you want me to do? Again, I'm being a little. And Russ, read 120 uh, elk books. Yeah, right. Yeah, or watch Dr. Oz or any of the other. You know, I, I, well, anyway. And these people are not believers. Well, even many are not. Yeah, I mean, it well, just. I'm, yeah, I'm not judging, but I'm just saying. Yeah. It's actually, yeah, often. I mean, it's like, and it, among among so many believers, your default response is not immediately to talk to the Lord about it; it's to talk to somebody else about it. Now, it's not that that's wrong to talk to somebody else, or evil even, but the the very first thing we should. This is what this. Dialogue between two people who love one another, Rosalind definition of prayer, is that you're just constantly focusing on what the, and then you do talk to, I mean, you're crazy if you don't consult other people, talk to other people too, or believers. But your default, and that's what James is trying to drive us home here. Okay, I only have a few minutes, I want to try to get this, this little paragraph done. But he issues a caution. He issues a caution, verse 60, see that? But let him Ask in faith with no doubting. Remember, back, count it all joy and count it that God is growing your faith, et cetera, et cetera. So when you talk to the Lord and you're asking the Lord for wisdom and so on, do it with faith, not with doubting. And so, you know, again, I mean, this isn't a rebuke. Again, it's one of the commands in the book of James. But you ask in faith, not doubting. In other words, you have such confidence and such trust in the Lord that as you talk to him, you know what he hears. Number two, he answers. And number two, three, his response will be the response that you need. Jesus talks about prayer in, in Matthew chapter 7. And he says to, he says to the people who are, whom he's addressing this to, when, when you talk, talk Lord, look, you ask, you will receive. When you knock, it'll be open. When you seek, you will find. What does that mean? God answers prayer. <laughs> Your expectation should be that when you talk to him, he's going to answer. That's what James is saying. He's saying the same thing his brother said. When you talk to God, expect him to answer your prayers. Not with doubt, oh, I don't know if he's going to hear me now. I don't know if he's going to. No, that's not how you approach it. And then James, excuse me, Jesus says in Matthew 7, when God responds, his answer will always be the right answer, a good. Because he says, 
like unlike you guys, or your little child asks you, Daddy, give me a piece of bread. What do you give him, a stone? You don't give your child a stone when you're stone hungry. That's an inappropriate gift. Second example. Jesus says, and you know to give gifts to your kid. If your child comes to you and says, Daddy, give me a piece of fish. I'm hungry. You don't give him a serpent, do you? That's a dangerous gift. It can hurt the child. How much more, and this is a wonderful language that the Lord Jesus used, how much more the God, the Father of light, will give those who ask him that which is good. Agathos, that which is good. God gives good gifts. Now, it's always important to remember who defines what's good. He does. He knows what's best for us. I've asked the Lord for a royal blue 911 Porsche. He has never answered that prayer. Oh, once he did. It's about this big. It's in a little plastic case that my kids gave me years ago for Christmas. Good Lord, is I don't believe the Lord has ever. I, I'm not sure I would really, really want to not blow blue night in Porsche. But that's a ridiculous prayer request. God's answer to our prayers is always good, Jesus says. James is saying the same thing. When you ask the Lord for wisdom, ask it in faith. You expect him to answer. You don't doubt it. And then he just uses this language, and these are figures of speech. For the one who doubts, notice the simile, is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Well, that's a good illustration of someone who doubts. You're allowing all the circumstances and things that you don't understand to just batter you and slam you around. That's a person of doubt, not a person of faith. For that person must not suppose he will see anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Literally, in the Greek, double-minded is two-souled, S-O-U-L, two-souled. There is some considerable evidence that James coined this phrase. It isn't found anywhere else in the Greek language. That James coined this. It's, it's like a person double-minded. A person has one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world. They're trying to be believers and unbelievers at the same time. I believe, but yet I doubt. I believe God, but I really doubt him. James says, that's double-minded. You can't be double-minded when God is your subject. And he says, a person that's double-minded has one foot in the world, believe, and one foot, uh, unbelief, and one foot in the kingdom, believe, that's crazy. That person is unstable. Literally, the, the word there is there is no foundation in their life. That's not a steadfast person, the goal of God's testing our faith, verse 3. That's an unstable person. They have no foundation. Remember Jesus says in Matthew 7, build your life on a rock, not on the sand. Because when the waves come and the storms come, what happens? You build your, your life on the sand. It washes away. You build your life, build your house on a rock. Who's the rock? Over Jesus. And then the storms of life happen. You're still standing. You're still steadfast. So James, is, again, he's talking in language that these early Jews who are hearing this for the first time, to whom he writes, would really understand, because he's using all the stuff out of the Old Testament. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know what he's talking about. Have the right 
purpose from God's perspective. Have the right purpose in mind of why you're going through trials. And if you act wisdom, how to understand it, how to respond to it, talk to the Lord about it. In faith and trust, don't be the double-minded person who doubts. Because if you doubt, then you're really unstable. You're trying to have it both ways. You can't live like that. So, ask God for wisdom. I'm teaching the book of Job. As a matter of fact, it's in the next class I go to. We'll probably finish the book today. Have you ever studied the book of Job? It's the most frustrating book to study. It's long. It's huge. Live, chapter, chapter. Because Job's friends are just blasting him away, and, they, and he's defending himself. He's becoming very uh, self-justifying in many ways. But he just doesn't understand what God is doing. He knows he's offered a sacrifice. He knows God's taking care of his sin. He doesn't believe with these three guys. But God's silence, God's silence drives him crazy and almost over the edge. And what, we're, what we'll be studying today in the, in the class is God's response to Job. Do you remember what God says to Job? Job, you have been questioning me. You have been saying I've been unjust to you. You're saying that I've been unfair to you. All you want to do is have an advocate and let me. You want to talk to me. You want to present your case to me. But before we do that, Joe, I want to ask you a couple of questions. He actually asks 70 questions. Joe, where were you when I created the earth? Where were you when I, when I was flinging all the stars, galaxies in the universe? Where were you when I created the moon and the sun? Did I seek your counsel? And they guess all these questions. Uh, no, uh, can you explain to me how? And he goes through twelve different animals, how all of these animals function. And I created. Can, Joe, can you explain to me why I created the ostrich, which is really a weird animal if you've ever studied? And he said, Joe, can, and what what he's doing is, Joe, if you can't understand how I run the physical universe. Why would you question me in how I run the moral universe? That's what James is saying here. You trust God implicitly in everything because he's running the show. And if you trust him, then you can have confidence in him when you're going through the trials of life. That's what Job had to learn. And when James is talking about wisdom here, the Jewish person would think, that's Job too. Job is one of the great wisdom books of the Bible because all of his friends, what they're saying about him is wrong. And, but Job's being a bit self-righteous, and he's doubting the goodness of God, and God has to correct him. And then, you know, he bows near the end in submission. So when, when James is talking like this, men and I won't say men and women, there are no women in class, but then it's important for you and me to take these eight verses really seriously. Because this is life. This is about life. This is facing life as an unbeliever. But it's facing life as a believer. Just because we come to faith in Jesus doesn't mean there are no more trials, no more difficulties. Now we have the resource of the spirit, we have the resource of the encouragement, and the resource of prayer. Talk to God. Ask him for the wisdom. 
Lord, how do I understand what you're doing and how do you want me to respond to this? And God is willing to ask, willing to answer when you ask. So it's a marvelous introduction of this book, but we're not done, but I'm out of time. Is everybody with me? All right. Everybody online with me? You okay? We are. Yep. All right. Next week, we'll start with verse 9, what I will call the democracy of testing. But we'll get to that next week. All right? I'm going to pray and let you go. Oh, my goodness. Father, we're thankful for the book of James, a brother of Jesus who came to faith in you, Lord Jesus, after the resurrection. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians. What, a, what an incredible leader of the church he became. This wonderful book that we're studying. He was head of the Jerusalem church. The, the writer of that compromise in Acts 15, the Jerusalem council, which spread throughout the churches of the Roman Empire. And Lord, he was willing to be martyred for you, which Josephus tells us was in AD 62. So Lord, we're, we're thankful that you inspired him through your Holy Spirit to write this very very important book of the New Testament. It helps us to have the perspective of what the justified life looks like. It helps us to understand how to respond to simple, everyday occurrences of the trials and difficulties of life. We're not, we're not immune to those. It's just now we have a different perspective. We know this is how you're growing our faith. We also understand what the unbeliever does not understand. This is how you are growing us into the image of your son, the Lord Jesus. This is part of that process of sanctification, Paul calls it. Lord, help us to grow in our understanding of the difficulties of life and to respond with the attitude of joy, that attitude of gratitude, trusting and having confidence in you. We're not the, we're not the victims of randomness. We're the victim of not the victim, really. We're, we're the product of a God who superintends and accomplishes all things in our life because you're a God of grace. You're a God who loves us. You're a God who has compassion. And we see that most of all, of course, in sending Jesus to die for our sins and be resurrected, giving us the Holy Spirit to empower and enable us. And we thank you that you're always with us. You never leave us. Help us to grow in our trust and confidence in you and be the men of faith you want us to be. To the glory of Christ, we pray this. Amen. Have a great week.